Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. Hear God's word to us. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. So my name is Kenny. Some of you may not know me. Um, I'm a pastor here at Christ Community. Um, recently, I've been working a lot uh, with the Leewood campus, although I live right over here and my wife does sound here, so this is home for me. Um, and, I, and I wanted to say this. This is important. I was, I'm an American Spaniard, and I don't fit in well with either of those cultures. But somehow, God brought us to this strange place called Kansas City, which we were convinced was a bunch of farms. And we got here and we see these buildings, right? Um, you probably hear that a lot. And we, and we feel like we're at home. Um, you guys have really helped us feel at home, and I just wanted to thank you for that and say what a privilege it is to be up here and preach this morning. All right. So if you're new here, over the last few weeks, we've been working through, um, after last, many weeks, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter written by the Apostle Paul close to, I don't know, close to 2,000 years ago. Um, and what we've been finding is it's incredibly relevant for us today. And I want to show you how this, how it is um, even today. But we've been finding, you know, all kinds of topics that these last three weeks we've been talking about sex and um, how, because that's in this book all over the place of how God views our sexuality. And I was so glad when I was told, look, you, you get to preach and it's not on sex stuff. I'm like, oh, great. And then I read the passage and it's circumcision and slavery. Like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Um, but actually there's, and, and you're thinking, how in the world is circumcision and slavery relevant to us today? Well, well let me show you. One of the characteristics that defines humans in the modern West is this search for each individual to fulfill his or her calling, right? Um, and, and to do that, we anxiously wait for what comes next, right? We're always saying, what, what comes next? What's the next thing I need to do? And look, as a pastor, I hear this all the time. People, people come to me and they're convinced that to be the full Christian, um, to be, to be the, that Christian that God's calling them to, they need to make this major life change, um, you know, I need to quit my job and become a missionary, or I need to go to Bible school, or, or I, I need to become a pastor, or, or I, need to, I need to take a vow of celibacy, um, or more, more often, I need to find the perfect partner. Then I'll be able to fulfill my calling. Um, and, and, you know, when I was a kid, I actually made a list of characteristics that my wife needed to have for me to fulfill my calling as a Christian. Um, needless to say, years later, my current wife, Martha, my current wife, my only wife, um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that Martha found this sheet of paper in my Bible and has mocked me ever since. Um, 
before that. But, but look, it's not, it's not just Christians that do this. Um, for many years, I worked with nonprofits and with leaders in the nonprofit sector. And every single day, I'd meet someone who had reached the top of their corporate ladder. You know, they, they'd finished you know, some amazing business school achievement or something. Um, and they said, but, but I wasn't fulfilling my calling. So I had to leave this. I had to find a new job, go to a new country, do something different. And, you know, some of them actually did this. There's a few privileged people that are able to leave their jobs and try something new and go travel somewhere and try some new thing. Um, but most people can't. The problem is they all think the same way. And they all end up facing disappointment when they're looking for this fulfillment and they're calling in something. And you, you see this existential need for what comes next to, re to reach our full potential. It's everywhere. It's not just in this big calling stuff. I mean, think about it. A few days ago, this commercial came out, or the, or the presentation came out for this Apple Watch. Not iWatch, because that's freaky. Apple Watch, very important, different. And you know, it's just this really expensive piece of equipment that does the same as your phone, but, but we need it, don't we? I mean, I, I know people who are like, I need to get, like, that will make my life complete, right? And maybe it's not the, <laughs> I see some people nodding back there. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's not the watch, maybe it's the phone, maybe it's something else. Um, maybe it's this thing, have you seen this ad that says you have a right to data? You see that as like it's just bizarre, but we, we need something new. We need new data. We need a better job. We need a better body, and this follows us throughout all our life. I mean, think about when you were in school. When you were in school, like everything was focused on what's next, right? You're in school. You're thinking about college, and then you get to college and you're thinking about your career. If I can just get that foot in the industry, right, or in that company or in that medical fellowship, then I'll be able to live out my calling. But then you get the job, and that's not enough either. You have to keep moving up the ladder, right? If I can just get that new promotion or that other job or move to this new location, and the whole time you're thinking, if I just get that next thing, then I'll be happy. Then I'll finally be satisfied, and I'll finally find rest. But what's so dangerous about this way of living is that it leads to crushing anxiety and to deep disappointment with life now. Because you can't be happy. You won't be happy until you get what's next. And someday... Sooner or later, what comes next won't come. You're too old. You're not talented enough. You're not lucky enough. You don't have the family name that you need, or you don't have the right skin color. Your child is born with a disability, and you have to stay at home, or you have to care for your elderly parents, or your career choice didn't fit the market trend. Or like a lot of my friends back home in Spain, what happens is the market actually crashed. So there is no market for the job that you were trained for. But you know what? It can get even worse than this. You can actually get what you want. You arrive, you reach the mountaintop, and you find you're still miserably discontent. And look, the Corinthians are struggling with the same thing in this passage. See, Corinth was a unique city for the ancient world. You know, in the ancient world, most people didn't get to choose what they did. You do what your father did, and if you're lucky, you, you, you know, you, you survive a few years. Um, but Corinth was a little different. It was smack in the middle of a trade route. It was kind of a new city that was built. And it attracted all kinds of really interesting people because social mobility was actually possible in Corinth. So you get, you get these traders, you get freed slaves, you get entrepreneurs, you get sailors, you name it. These people are coming to Corinth, and here they have the opportunity to start over again, to set themselves up for a new life, to socially scale, um, to make a fortune, to rise in power and wealth. If you were lucky, you could fulfill the Corinthian dream. That sound familiar to anyone? Um, you just needed the next thing around the corner. That then you'd make it then you'd be content. And you see, spiritually, it was the same way for them. They began to think that because God had saved them through the gospel, he had some glorious, amazing new calling for them. Something, something better for their lives, like a better version of me was going to happen because of this. 
This is a Christian dream. So they started ditching their marriages, quitting their jobs. We've seen some of this even in this passage. Anything to be better positioned for what came next in their amazing spiritual calling. And some, probably the more wealthy ones, more powerful ones, they were actually able to change things. They probably could change stuff around or make others change so that they felt that their culture was on top. They started acquiring privilege and a privileged status within the church. But many others didn't even have the freedom to choose a job. Some people didn't even have a freedom to choose who they would marry if they'd marry at all. And they began wondering if they could ever fulfill their calling as Christians. And this pressure to get what comes next, to be able to choose their future, it was crushing them. It was destroying this church. And initially, when we read this passage, Paul's words don't seem to help, do they? If you haven't done so yet, if you could open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 um, and, and verse 17. If you have the community Bible, this is on page 995. But look at verse 17. It doesn't seem to be that Paul's helping too much. Look what it says. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Okay, Paul, but what is that life that God has called me to? What do I need to do to get there? How do I need to position myself for the next move? And this is what Paul says. He says, you don't have to do a thing. You don't need the next thing. He says, in fact, you're missing the whole point of the gospel. Here in the church, there's no need to change who you are. There's no need to seek a better position in order to follow Jesus. You're loved. You're accepted. You're saved. You're used. You're called right where you are. You can follow Jesus here and now. You don't need a different life to follow your calling. To fulfill your calling, you don't need something different. You do not need a different life to follow your calling. And what Paul does is he describes kind of three situations or three areas that we don't need to change. So let's look at those. Let's go straight in. The first thing he says is you don't need a new culture to follow your calling. You don't need a new culture to follow your calling. Let's look at this in verses 18 and 19. I'll read those. He says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. You see, circumcision is what Jews did and Greeks didn't. That's one way of defining it. And Paul uses this term kind of as a shorthand description for all the cultural practices or ethnic markers associated with these two groups. Um, I don't want to get too graphic with this, but in, um, in ancient Greece, circumcision was actually something that was an external marker. Let me explain. You know this big 12 thing that we had going over here is like a cricket match? I think, no, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, the, 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 the Corinthians had something very similar. They had these games that they went to, except they didn't wear uniforms, if you catch my drift. Um, and th th these were the places where you socialized with people. Um, there were also these public baths that you went to. So literally, circumcision was a public mark. It's almost like the color of the, your skin. But when Paul's referring to this, he's referring to much more, because plus he's not just addressing men, obviously. Um, but here's the thing. If you wanted to move up in society, you had to adapt to the majority culture. That's true even for today. You had to try to hide your accent, be silent about certain parts of your family background, maybe even try to disguise the color of your skin to fit in. Or... You just gathered with your group of people and ignored the other group. That's what was going on. And the Corinthians were bringing this mentality into the church. The stronger culture would start imposing its norms, right? It'd say, look, to be a good Christian, you have to talk like this, or you have to eat like this, or you, you have to worship in this manner, or you have to do this operation to yourself, <laughs> or you have to remove it, depending on which house church you were attending, probably. 
And look, if you didn't, if you didn't conform to all this, you probably weren't kicked out of the church. But you, you began to feel like you were an inferior Christian, that you couldn't quite live up to the calling that everyone else was living up to. And Paul addresses this and he says, no, you're exactly who God wants you to be. You're exactly who God wants you to be. He says, Gentiles, did God make you a Jew before he called you? No. He looks at the Jews. He says, Jews, did, did God make you a Gentile before he called you? No, he called you where you were. He called you while you were the color you were, while you had the accent that you have, and the quirky family background that you really hope no one ever discovers about you. Sorry, this is definitely my case sometimes. Don't ask me about it. Um, you don't need to change. You don't need to hide. You're the culture God wants you to be. You see, Christ died for the whole world. That's what we're told in Scripture. He, he died for both Jews and Gentiles, for men and for women, for black and for white, for Latinos and for Asians. And believe it or not, he even died for Spaniards and Americans. Um, you don't need a new culture to follow your calling. And look, this is a tremendously liberating message. I know for some of you, you're in a culture, worshiping in a culture that's not your own, and God is saying to you, you don't need to adapt. I've called you in the culture where you are. But listen, this goes beyond culture. You see, we, we live in a society where our media tells us, right, you need this next thing to make it. You need this next thing to be it, right? You, you need to look like this. You have to have this. You have to wear this. And until you've done that, you haven't arrived. But this is not the way God views you. He never thinks of you that way. He never feels, about, he never feels that way about you, ever. He loves you, and he called you just as you are. And you can let him love you that way. But see, Paul does say one thing has to change. One thing marks us as belonging to God's people. And here, he mentions it, he says, it's keeping the commandments of God. You know, well, what does that mean? Cause that, that had to be a little strange to the Jewish people here, and especially because the commandment of God in, in the, the old covenant and the way that they thought was, you know, <laughs> marking themselves for God. But in, in another letter, in his letter to the Galatians, he used the exact same sentence, and he fleshes out the second part. Let me read that. It's Galatians 5, 6. He says the same thing. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So following the commandments of God is faith working th through love. And what this means is that your primary identity is no longer your culture in the gospel, or whatever the majority culture tells you to be either, but rather your primary identity, your marker, sorry, is your faith in Christ, your trust in him. And that faith, that trust, works itself out in love. So now, because you belong to Christ, because you're marked for him, you can embrace others as well. You can be affirmed in your culture, but it means you can also affirm other cultures without being afraid of losing your own. And you see, this is, this is astounding in the gospel. This isn't in other classic texts. This isn't the message we hear normally of, be whoever you want to be and hang out with whoever you want to hang out and the haters, let them hang. You know, this isn't what Paul's saying. He's saying, be who you're called to be and then embrace the person next to you who's not like you. It's a completely different message says because you belong to Christ, because Christ is reconciling cultures, you can actually embrace other cultures without losing your own. And you see, um, to, to just think, a couple of summers ago, I visited a bunch of multi-ethnic churches around the U.S. A multi-ethnic church basically means a church where 20% or more of the congregation belongs to an ethnic group that's not the majority. And just, just for, to blow your mind, there's only 3% of churches in the United States that respond to that description. Um, we're doing something wrong. But I went to visit one of these multi-ethnic churches to kind of figure out, how do, you, how do you do this? And they had this thing called the 70% rule, or the 70% um, principle, I think they called it. And basically, let, let me just tell you what this looks like. 
this is how they, they'd say it. They say, if an individual in the given church service is comfortable with this church service, the worship service, 70% of the time or more. So what they mean is they love the song selection, they connect with the illustrations of the message, they understand what's going on in the church, they like the snacks, the coffee, you know, that kind of stuff. If they, if they connect, if they're comfortable with 70% or more of the service, if one individual is, then we're failing as a church. Why? Because it means that someone else sitting in that congregation that doesn't belong to that culture, that doesn't speak the same language, that doesn't worship in the same way, is being excluded. We're saying this culture is better and more important than the rest. <laughs> and this is difficult because it makes us all uncomfortable. So it, it, was, it was really interesting because basically what they're saying at this church is we have to train our people to be used to being uncomfortable. And you see, that that's a hard thing in this world. That's not the message we're getting. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, not, you know, uncircumcision is okay and you can meet over here and circumcision is okay. He's saying, no, you both meet together and you learn to be uncomfortable and you can now because you've been accepted in Christ. It's not about you. It's not about your culture. It's your primary marker. So are we ready for that as a church? Because I want to ask this. Are we ready to be uncomfortable for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of the person living next to you? Are we confident enough in our calling as Christians to embrace other cultures? Are we confident enough in our own culture, in our own makeup, in our own way of being, that we can learn and try different things, even if it's weird German food? I mean, um, not really. <laughs> but I'm serious. Are, are we ready for this? Maybe it might start with food. That's kind of a funny thing, but it gets harder. But this is what Paul is saying to these people. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. You can worship together because God is marking the people. So first, Paul talks about culture. You don't need a new culture to follow your calling. But then he gets into something even more difficult. He says, you don't need to be better positioned to follow your calling. You don't need to be better positioned to follow your calling. And to get at this point, um, he illustrates it by pointing to the worst possible social position in society. And he says, these people can fulfill their calling now. Look at, look at me, or look at this in verses 21 and 22. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So this word bondservant, probably in some of your Bibles has a little asterisk, and if you look down at the bottom, it says slave, because that's what the word means. Basically, anyone who no longer has freedom over his own circumstances. And look, this is astonishing, because Paul's addressing those in the church that are slaves, which means there are people in the church that were slaves. Um, and, and notice, you can even notice how he changes persons. He's speaking in third person, and then when he talks to these slaves, he says, you. He's talking in second person, plural. He's addressing them personally, and this is what he says. You don't need a better position to follow your calling. This is shocking. Now, we know that Paul is not affirming slavery. Neither the ancient Greek form of slavery, nor the American racist or race-based form of slavery, which was racist, um, nor any, any other kind of slavery. And he makes that pr pretty much clear in verse 23, right? He says, no one should be a bondservant. No one should be a slave. And, and also throughout his letters, Paul is constantly undermining slavery. We have this letter to Philemon, which is a, was a slave owner, and basically says to Philemon, look, I have your slave here, and you're both Christians, which means you're both brothers, so there's no way that you can be a slave owner over him. This makes no sense. Let him free. Um, that's, what, that's what he's saying. But here's the thing that was happening. Slaves were becoming believers. Lots of slaves. And they were still bondservants when they became believers. So Paul, like a good pastor, 
He's helping them think through what this Christian walk looks like even in their situation. And the statement is still shocking. You see, a slave doesn't have a choice over what job he has. He doesn't get paid. He doesn't get any reward for what he's doing. And in fact, slaves didn't even have the right to marry. So this whole conversation, this, this, this section is stuck in a conversation about marriage, whether you should marry or not to be a better Christian. That slaves couldn't even choose that. So legitimately and understandably, they're probably asking themselves, look, if I can't even decide what I do with my life, how in the world am I going to serve Christ? How in the world can I be a Christian? And this is an understandable question. This is a great question. But Paul says, he looks at them, and he says, look, now that Christ has marked you, now that he has paid your price, everything has changed. Now, your work isn't some banal task for an earthly master. It's meaningful to God. Right now, right where you are, God is using you now to fulfill your call. Now, let, let's be clear here. Paul is not saying, hey, being a slave is a kind of vocation, and God has called you there, so you better just stay there because that's your position. That's wrong. That's a gross misinterpretation of the text. And anytime you hear that, you can say that's not biblical teaching. Because he says this later, right? He says, if you can become free, become free. Like, come on, obviously. But what he is saying is if you can't get your freedom, if you're the subject of a terrible injustice and part of a system that's abusive and wrong, don't be worried. It doesn't make you a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Because he, because God, is now your owner. What you do, your work, all of it matters equally to God than the person sitting next to you who might be of the highest position around. There is no second-class citizens. You're both servants of the Most High. And look, one day justice will be made. Look how he puts this in Colossians 3. He goes through a similar string of arguments. Um, and he's speaking to slaves as well. And this is how he, he ends that part, speaking to slaves. He says, this is Colossians 3, 23 to 25. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Can you imagine this for someone who gets no pay for his work? At most gets, gets maybe a pat on the back or something, saying, Look, your master's not going to reward you. The Lord is going to reward you with an inheritance, with something that's greater than a payment. And he says, look, you're serving the Lord Christ. And then we always forget this last verse, but look what it says. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. See, this changes everything. When we realize we're called by God right where we are, right where you are, you're free from this crushing anxiety to seek the next best thing. And it's not just that you're free from worrying about the next best thing, but you're also free to serve others around you. That's why he says, right after he talks to slaves, he says, look, those of you who are free, now you're slaves, now you're bondservants of Christ. See, you're free in a whole new sense. You're free by being enslaved to serving others, and this is a joy. And so that video about Ken, this is what he's talking about. When he realized who he was actually working for, let me just say something. We didn't record this video for this sermon. That's like a three-year-old video. Um, but it's so amazing how it connects and how this truth hits people. When he realized who he was actually working for, everything changed. It was no longer about moving up in rank or just getting through the day so that you could get home and do something useful or something meaningful. He became so freed from that mentality that he even began to serve the people above him. Because right? sometimes we think about this, well, to be a good Christian worker, I just have to be nice about, to the people around me or I have to be ethical. Look, you have to be ethical anyway. That has nothing to do with Christianity. If, if you're not ethical at your workplace, there's some real issues going on. If you're not nice to people around you. But what, what God's saying here is, I'm your boss, so you can serve the people above you. And that's, 
this is amazing. This doesn't happen. You can't pay for this. Even those bosses that weren't that great, we can serve them now. And this is astonishing. You see, what this tells us is right here, right now, wherever you are, what you do in the majority of your time matters. Even your work. Why? Because God has called you and you now work for him. You don't have to have the perfect job, the perfect training, a great schedule, good pay, or any pay. A higher position in society to make a difference. No, not in God's mind. In God's mind, you're being used right now. Not tomorrow, not in the next position, not when you finally get paid for what you've been doing for so many years, but now. You don't need a better position to follow your calling. You just need to realize that wherever you are, you're already serving God, and you can trust this master. Now, let me, let me just say one more thing about this. Serving within the system, what I'm not saying, it, it does not mean that you blindly conform to the system. Right? Think about this in regards to slavery. Think about how this, so this letter is meant to be read publicly in a church. And so in these congregations, we know from history that slaves and masters were sitting next to each other in the service. Now, can you, can you imagine this is being read? And first, you know, it's addressed to slaves. Slaves, you know, you're, you're completely free. And it's a, it's a freeing message. They're like, okay, that's cool. I can keep working. But then he says, look, no one should be enslaved. No one in God's kingdom can be, can be bonded, can be, can be enslaved, can be owned by someone else. Now, what does that do to the slave owners? Can you imagine what? probably a pretty awkward moment. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, but imagine for a slave owner, there's no way a slave owner leaves that room having heard that and doesn't put into practice beginning to free his slaves. And if he does, he's a hypocrite. And you see, this, 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 this applies to us as well because what, what Paul's saying, what God's saying through Paul is now you all work for God. You're all equal in this thing. And you see, when you work for God, stuff kind of changes. So as we go about our business, as we work, as we vote, as we interact with our neighbors, remember that you're bond servants to God. And this God cares for the poor. He loves the widow and the fatherless one. He does not put up with unfair wages. This is throughout all of scripture. Remember that God is your boss. And he has a corporate policy to welcome the stranger and stand up for those who are neglected. And look, doing this, obeying this God instead of your earthly masters, it's probably going to get you demoted sometimes. But what did we just learn? It doesn't matter where you are in your social position to serve Christ. This is what we're called to do. This means we're free to serve God fearlessly. No matter where you are, you don't have to change your position to follow your calling. You can literally start tomorrow. And I just want to encourage you, as you go tomorrow back to your workplace, and look, some of you are thinking, well, I, I'm looking for a new job. Is that No! Look, we live in this Western society that's, that's fairly prosperous, and for a lot of us, we actually have the opportunity to seek what, what, what we're good at and what our gifts work to. You know, most of the world can't do this, but if you can, it would be stupid for you not to seek a job that, that fits with your, um, with your abilities. But what's amazing about Scripture, what's amazing about Christianity, is it hits everyone in the world. You don't have to be super privileged and be able to choose your job to be a Christian. God uses you where you are, so tomorrow... As you go to that job that you're thinking, I just wish I could get another job, or as you file resumes and send them to people hoping that maybe someone will recognize you, or as you care for your kids, remember you're serving God. What you do matters. Say, okay, Kenny, I'm ready for this. Tomorrow I'm going to start following my calling. But, but what is that calling? What is my calling? Right? 
Well, I have two pieces of good news. One, we're going to look at that, and two, it's the last point of the sermon. Because this is what Paul says. He says, you don't need a personalized calling. You don't need a personalized calling. You see, in this text, the word calling is key. It's all over the text. Um, it's repeated seven times in these eight verses. Let me just show you. Verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Um, and, and then it says it down further. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Just talk about this calling. Then we look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freedman in the Lord. And finally, verse 24, in whatever condition in which you were called, let there, there let him remain with God. So calling is clearly a big deal, but what we find here is Paul hasn't defined calling. And, what, and, and we're asking, why, Paul, tell us what calling is. Well, he already has in chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, scroll up or down or whatever you want to say or move your pages back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And there Paul has, has described calling very beautifully. And this is just something when we're reading, especially these letters, often we'll find concepts we don't really know what they mean. Often in the first chapter or so, Paul or whoever the author is is kind of defined those. So let's look at that here. Let me just walk through a few of the verses in chapter 1 that defines what this calling means. Um, so first, chapter 1 verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, what does he say? Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In other words, here he's saying, it's basically a Christian who hangs out with other Christians. That's what calling is. Then verse 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God's calling here is kind of focused as a fellowship centered around God's son, Christ. Work down to verse 24. He says, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, notice that he's already making this distinction and bringing them together. What does it say? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, this calling is basically experiencing the gospel. Christ, the power. You know, in other places, Paul says the gospel is the power for salvation for those who believe, the power of Christ and the wisdom of Christ. And then move down to verses 26 and following. And here he gives a, a broader definition. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. In other words, that's not your calling, what you're doing or your position. But he says, look, but God chose what is foolish in the world to, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And here we go, it says, And because of him, because of God, because of his calling, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, God himself called us to be in Christ Jesus, to be in Jesus Christ. So our primary calling, the primary calling that we have is to be in fellowship with Christ and in fellowship with fellow believers. No matter what your vocational bent is, what we feel God's telling us to do with our vocational gifts, what, um, what direction we're supposed to go in life, where we're supposed to live, regardless of that, our primary calling, the first thing, the most important thing, according to Paul here, is to be in fellowship with Christ and his followers. Your primary calling, what makes you unique as a Christian, is to be in fellowship with Christ and his followers. It's 
preacher David Helm puts it this way. He says, um, when you think about calling, he says, calling is not so much a field of study in which you are to be productive, but a fellowship in which you are to be a participant. You're called to be a participant with Christ, to walk with Christ as you work, as you play, as you suffer, as you rejoice. In fact, in the, in the original language in this text, that first verse that says everyone do according to what he's, it actually says walk in your calling. Just keep walking in this calling. And you see, the Christian calling isn't so much about where you're walking to, but who you're walking there with. This is amazing. This is astonishing. It changes everything. And you see, here's the amazing thing that drives Paul to say this so confidently. When you start walking with Christ, his life becomes yours. See, now, when you're walking with Christ, you're free from having to disguise who you are and where you come from or where you belong to. You're free to finally, fully, completely belong in a fullness, in the fullness of your ethnicity, in the fullness of your culture, in the fullness of your personality. Look, in a fullness you don't even realize yet. You don't even know yourself as much as Christ knows you. That's what happens when Christ's life becomes yours. Because when Christ died, he tore down those walls of hostility between cultures. Now all cultures are reconciled to him. We read this elsewhere in Scripture. It says God is reconciling the world to him through Christ who became sin. So now your culture, everything, it's, it's being reconciled to Christ so that you can look at him and you can look at others and you can belong. That's what it means that Christ's life becomes your own. He made the ultimate sacrifice so that he could call you home from exile to eternal rest. And look, now when Christ's life becomes yours, you're, you're free from the pressure to perform, to live up to the standards of the world, to get the next best promotion. You're free from having to justify your life, to justify your existence by doing something extraordinary. Christ did that extraordinary thing by living the perfect life, by living the perfect ordinary life for you. And this freedom, this rest, it begins here. It begins now. You don't need a new culture. You don't need a better position in life. You don't need a personalized calling. You don't need a different life to follow your calling. And whatever you're doing, wherever you're working, whatever you look like, however you speak like, whatever you eat, Christ invites you to walk with him. Will you go with him this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your encouragement, Lord, that you have literally sent your son to reconcile the entire world, no matter what our position, no matter what we look like, no matter whether we can choose or not what to do with our hands and feet. You free us to serve. Lord, we pray this morning that you would tender our hearts to be ready to be uncomfortable, to be ready to be in those positions, Lord, that don't feel that great, but to still understand your freedom and be able to live there without the crushing anxiety of needing what comes next. We thank you, Lord, because this is done through you. There's nothing that we bring to this marriage with you that contributes, nothing except our sin, but you give us a whole new life, a whole new way of Amen. So one of the ways we're reminded of what this walking looks like is actually through communion. So this word communion actually means fellowship. Um, and we see it, right? And the, the bread represents Christ's flesh. The, the wine or the juice in this culture, there you go, there's a cultural difference, um, represents, it represents his blood, and so we're being united to him. And then w the way we do it here, we come together in groups of four or six. And what, what we're saying with that is we're walking together. We're doing this together in fellowship with Christ and with each other. So this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to think of this as you go and take the element.